Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 3-260. And thanks for letting me get the poison out of my system in that last episode. I appreciate everyone who reached out to me. Writing that out and reading through it a number of times really helped me move through the healing process. It's been a busy couple of weeks. I'm humbled, grateful, and appreciative that my team really stepped up and delivered an awesome Groton Road Race in the face of a challenging climate. It was amazing how well it came off and how well the community rallied around us. It was really something. Amazing times, amazing times. Today, we have a great chat with Dave Salvis, who is getting ready to run across New Hampshire and is a veteran runner from New England. We go through the natural evolution, the ebb and the flow of a running life. And I think it'll give you something to think about, especially you youngsters. Youngsters, that's what we say in Massachusetts, youngsters. Utes. (laughs) I'm going to talk up my thoughts on how to practice leadership in a crisis in Section 1, having had some time to think about and practice these skills at different points in my life. In section two, I'm going to talk about my love affair with the 1,600-meter track workout. Sexy stuff, that is. And I have been training. (laughs) I've bumped up my training to four days a week from three days a week, and I'm adding in some speed work and some over-distance to leverage my base fitness from the spring. Uh, over distance is just longer, long runs. And so for me, it would be like a 24 mile run. And I'm sure you folks already guessed that I'm not going to let my Boston Marathon career end like this. And I'm not going to, I'm not looking to take another charity bib. So therefore, the only way out is through. <laughs> if you had asked me two years ago before my heel freaked out on me, If I could run a 3.30 marathon to qualify, I would have laughed out loud at the absurdity of that question. The previous two Bostons, I turned in low 3.20s without even training for the race specifically. Isn't it interesting how our sport can humble us? I need to change my attitude. I need to reset. I need to acquire the mind of the novice, the mind of the beginner. What I have done, really, has no bearing on what I can do. What I could do two years ago is a nice artifact, but really nothing more than a friendly ghost. I have stepped through another door and need to acclimate to the new environment. And I was not ready to race Boston. I did not have the fitness or the confidence. I was neither physically or mentally prepared. But the training I did this spring is not wasted. The marathon is a long race, and you benefit from years of building the blocks of fitness. I proved that I can run and train without pushing my plantar fasciitis over the edge. I moved my recovery that much further along. I built a base that I can work from to fix the things I I need to fix to get to my goals. A couple of things that I need to work out became apparent this spring. And one thing I noticed was that my mechanics and pacing were awful. Somewhere in all the compensating for the injury, my pacing skills left the building. I just don't have that burned-in, comfortable, metronome pace that I can relax into and just click off the miles. I think the foot problems have thrown my mechanics off and pushed me out of balance. Another thing I noticed is that I haven't been able to recover during the race. Let me explain. In any long race, there are going to be spots where you go into the red zone and you have to back off and recover. But this is an in-race recovery. So you have to stay on or close to your race pace strategy. 
For example, you get to that big hill that fatigues your quads and pushes your heart rate through the roof. At the top of the hill, you can't just start walking if you expect to meet your race goals. You have to relax and recover and shake out those quads and let your heart rate come down while you keep racing. In my training this spring, I would be forced to walk or stop and stretch out a muscle in the middle of an interval. And that's not what you want to train your body to do. And the final challenge I have is my pace gap. I've been racing marathons for 16 years now, and I've burned in the form and mechanics of the race pace. But that race pace I burned in for a 310 marathon is counterproductive (laughs) when I'm trying to run a 330 marathon. The mechanics may be comfortable, but the effort level causes that catastrophic failure that I can't recover from gracefully mid-race. So I need to work on my pacing. I need to work on my in-race discomfort tolerance and recovery. And I need to adjust my comfort zone up to a sustainable pace closer to what my goal times are now. And I know only one way to burn in pace and mechanics. That is by going down to the track and running 1600s. So the worm turns, and what's old is new. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Leadership in times of challenge. Over the past few weeks, we have seen some challenging events in our community, and as they say, into everyone's life, some rain must fall. These events can be macro events like stock market crashes or economic failures, and these events can be personal like job loss or the end of a relationship or sickness or death in the family. What I would like to talk to you about today is how you respond to these types of sudden, big, violent, and tremendously difficult challenges. The type of challenges that I'm talking about are things like unexpected accidents or deaths or rapid, unexpected changes and events that impact you, your family, your organization, and or your community suddenly, right now, and permanently change your frame of reference. The first thing you need to understand and wrap your big brain around is that these outsized events, whether good or bad, they're outliers. These events won't hit you every day or every week, but you will get a handful of them in your life. And the magnitude of these outliers makes them significant enough for you to think about how to react to them and how to lead in the face of them. And these situations will often come out of the blue at you and you will not have time to plan your response. These are not situations where you will choose to lead. Most of these events will be forced upon you, and you will be forced to lead. You will be shoved into a position of leadership due to the great chaos and leadership void that these events create, and the great fear that they produce in your community. Your community will be in fear and without direction, and they will need you to lead, and you have a responsibility to do so. The second thing you need to realize is that leadership need not require that you are the one in charge. You can lead from within the pack. The way you react, the things you say and do, will influence those around you. Even if you're not the person in charge, you are in charge of how you act and react. And what you do very much influences a community that's in shock and is looking around for a trace of direction. You cannot plan for these outliers, but your ability to lead in a crisis is dependent on how you have trained your brain every day up to that point. Your ability to do the right thing will be greatly enhanced if you know yourself and what your core values are. Your comfort in yourself will allow you to lead others in a crisis. And that's something you work on every day of your life. And we've talked about that before. But what are some of the specifics of crisis leadership? What is the script that you can follow when your chance comes? Well, first, don't overreact. When a crisis happens, your dinosaur brain will want to take over with panic, emotion, and a cesspool of unhelpful chemicals being pumped into your limbic system. Take a step back, use your big brain, assess the situation, and determine what your narrative is going to be. 
Secondly, you have to be there. No crisis is ever helped by hiding or running away. As awful as something is, you have to face it to come to grips with it. You can't lead and you can't help your community if you retreat inside yourself. Thirdly, you need to set the tone. Once you understand what your narrative needs to be to help your community, start walking the walk and talking the talk. Lead by acting and talking along the lines of that narrative, whether it is helping, grieving, or healing. People are watching you, and you need to act out your leadership. Fourth, get it out of your system. Don't bury the shock or the trauma of the crisis. Do what you need to do to get the poison out of your system. Talk it out, write it out, run it out, love it out, accept it, and work through it. Fifth, decide on your narrative. The true response in a crisis is going to depend on your messaging. What is the story you are going to tell? When you look back on this crisis in 10 years, what is the story you are going to wish got told? How did it play out with chaos and vitriol or with the community pulling together to help and to overcome? What's the narrative you are going to throw your weight behind? Create your narrative. And next, you need to live your narrative. Once you know the story of how this is going to play out, make it happen. Every time you interact with someone in your community, tell the narrative, shape the narrative, and live the narrative. Embody the story you want to be told. So what does this narrative include? Well, first it includes acceptance and understanding. So don't dwell in the crisis, but you do need to accept it. You have to say, yes, this was a crisis. Yes, this was an event. And yes, we were all traumatized by the impact of this event. Then you need to give assurance of okay. Yes, this is a crisis, but we're okay. We're still breathing and the sun is going to come up tomorrow. And then third, you need to paint the picture of positive response. Yes, this was a crisis, but we are all blown away by the way our community has pulled together, etc. And then you have to paint the picture, the narrative, the vision of the future. You have to give people something to look forward to. Yes, this was a crisis, but we are going to work together, and tomorrow we are going to be stronger, and the day after that, stronger still. And finally, there's going to be those who want to leverage this crisis to promulgate their own negative narratives and sensationalism, and you cannot let them influence your narrative. When they ask you, isn't this crisis horrible and aren't you devastated, simply repeat your narrative, your leadership narrative. There will be a lot of noise. The news and the politicians will look for ways to fan the flames. Ignore the noise. It has no bearing on you and your narrative. Responding to the noise is like feeding a bad dog. It will just get stronger in a feedback loop of the negative. Don't feed the bad dog. Keep telling your narrative, your story, your version, and soon the noise will fade away, and your version will be the one that leads your community out of the dark times of crisis and into the light of the future. So think about how you will respond in an unexpected crisis. What is the story you will tell? What is the narrative you will throw your weight behind? How will you lead your community in thought and action to a better future? And there's a postscript here because I thought about this some more. And it became obvious to me that it's important to note that times of crisis and challenge are not just opportunities for positive leadership. They're also opportunities for negative leadership. And when a crisis happens, there is a leadership void. People are scared and unsure of the narrative, and they look for direction. And this is fertile ground for sociopaths to step in with their own warped narratives. And throughout history, we have seen sociopaths, evildoers, and merely criminally misdirected incompetence seize power during times of crisis because of the opportunity to create and shape a new narrative. And I won't dwell on this risk, but I will say that this makes your responsibility to your community even more acute in times of crisis. It makes your responsibility to stick to your core principles and act positively to shape the narrative that much more important. So I'll ask you again, 
In the face of all this, how will you lead your community in thought and action to a better future? I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. David. Yes. We're back. How are you? Very good. And you? Good. It's been a it's been a weird spring and a busy couple of weeks, but uh yeah, it's all good. Yeah, uh, it is. <laughs> the weather has not been in our favor on and off, so Well, you know, we're just positive people. We're gonna yep. we're gonna we're, we're gonna be it, so yeah, we run through it exactly. We keep going. But all else fails, keep pedaling. So I ran across your story on Facebook, I think. And you know, that's the power of social media is you get to see folks doing stuff. You piqued my interest in that you're running across the state of New Hampshire. Which I gotta tell you is no big deal. I run across the state of New Hampshire, you know, every year for the past like 12, 15 years. Yeah, but you do it from Colebrook to Arrow. That's like 20 miles. <laughs> it's less. It's like 17 doing miles. It's the southern part where it's 116. Yeah. So tell us tell us who you are and what you're doing. All right. My name's uh, Dave Salvis. I live in Amherst, New Hampshire. I'm 63 years old and uh, retired for a couple of years now. And when I turned 60, I decided to celebrate my 60th birthday by running a marathon a month for a year. And then when I decided to retire, I said I should do something to commemorate that. So I ran the length of New Hampshire from the Canadian border to Massachusetts for a total of 221 miles and did that to raise money for leukemia lymphoma, blood cancer. And I raised about $10,000. And now I've decided I needed another challenge, so I did a couple of iron, half Ironman and needed another one, so I decided to run the state of New Hampshire the width-wise this year. So, so June 20th, I'll be running from the Vermont border to the Atlantic Ocean. So what's the, what's the course? The course is mostly uh, starting right at the Otter Teen area and heading basically 101 all the way to Hampton Beach. And because of you can't run on the highway, I'm running parallel roads to that, Route 23 and 47 type. And I'll basically do, at 63 years old, almost 64, I'll do a marathon a day for four days. So in the, you know, in the area that you're running through, you're close to the Green Mountains? and the White Mountains, which are uh, pretty big mountains, but I think you're more sort of in the foothills. Right. But, but still, you've got some good two, three-mile climbs and descents in there, right? Right. And you go over up over Temple Mountain, it's going to be a pretty tough haul. So that's actually where they'll do – We our running club puts on what's called the Pacman Adnock 10-miler. I have run very it. Very challenging hill. I have run it. Are you actually going up pack? I'm not going to go up. I'll go up the – main road, but I won't go up pack itself. Yeah, because um, I remember running that race, Dave, and, uh, you know, that's a chin scraper, right? Yeah, it is. It's actually, there's some points where it's steeper than Mount Washington. Yeah, which is 25, 20-ish percent. It's in the 20% yeah. grade. Yeah. At one point, I think pack is 23 plus percent. Yeah, it's a, it's a chin scraper. Yeah, it is a chin scraper, yeah. <laughs> you look for a ladder, not a road. Yes, that's that that hurts going up going up and coming down. Have you always been a runner? No, actually I'm not. It's like you know I I still I I worked with uh, John Bingham who used to write for Runner's World for years and is now out on his own. He's actually uh, one of the spokesmen for leukemia lymphoma, and I actually coached for them for seven years. I steal a lot of his lines and with permission from him that you know. I'm a, not a former high school athlete or a former college athlete. I'm a former fat man. And what I did is I used to smoke heavily, and I was big enough, you know, at one point that I almost had my own zip code. <laughs> I turned around and decided to get healthy at one point and quit smoking and 
took up some healthy habits. My friend was a runner, and I said, geez, I can do this. I ran a quarter mile, thought I had a heart attack. Yeah. And it just changed my life. What was the driving point? What was that inflection point where you said, hey, I can't do this anymore. I got I to gotta do something about this. It's funny because I think back to when I was in high school, I would sit on the couch with a cigarette in my hand and watch the Boston Marathon on the Channel 4 News, you know, smoking a cigarette. And it's like, I can do that. You know, I always had dreams deep back in my mind that I wanted to do something. And then when I was 29, 29-ish, I had a tenant that was uh, into triathlons. He was actually doing the Ironman when they first came out back in the you know, late 70s. And I just decided that I wanted to get healthy. I saw what he was doing, and he just kind of motivated me into saying I wanted something better for my life. I saw people who were, you know, walking around with all kinds of ailments and complaining. And I said, yeah, I'm 29 years old. I shouldn't have to worry about, in a couple of years, worry about ailments or this or that, that I should probably change my lifestyle. Yeah, and that was um, that was a big running boom in our area because we had, you know, we had Bill Rogers and, right. and Joan Benoit, and, you know, the whole area was a real hotbed of, of, of inspirational people. Yeah, I mean, Bill Rogers, 75, set the American record in Boston. And it's like, you know, and you sat there and said, yeah, I, I think I could do this. And I'd light up another cigarette. <laughs> so it must have been a pretty hard process to go from where you were then to where you are now. Yeah. It, and, it's, and it's never a straight line, as I understand it. No, no, it isn't. It's like a lot of, you know, peaks and valleys along the way. And, you know, at one point, you know, I had a couple of, issues with feet where I, you know, uh, really couldn't run that, that much, if at all, because it hurt so much. And my wife was looking in the yellow pages for divorce lawyers because I was so cranky because I couldn't run. And <laughs> it's been a great journey. I've met some fabulous, fabulous people and made great friends that have been friends, you know, will be friends forever. And it's just been a great community of people. It's just amazing how, you know, loving people are. And you know, when you've got something in common with them, such as running, it's a, you know, it even enhances it even more. Yeah. It sounds like you got the, the full-on bug, though. You got hooked up with some of those crazy runner types and did the whole, I'm, I'm going to see how far, how fast, until you get to a point where you break yourself. Yeah. And then, you know, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, this guy and I would run together, and we would, like, always – every day trying to do, you know, something better than him, you know, not doing the smart thing about running, taking easy days and rest days. It's every day was a race between him and I, and we'd race every day at lunchtime. You know, it's like, and finally we said, you know, what are we doing? We're killing ourselves here. You know, we're not enjoying it anymore. We've got to, you know, back off. We would go to marathons and like, Hey, I beat you by, you know, 36 seconds. Hey, I beat you by, you know, 56 seconds. It's like, you know, it ended up being, not fun for a while because we got so competitive. And then when we are able to ratchet it back a little bit and do the running just to enjoy the running, but still be competitive, it was so much more enjoyable. Right. And that's, that's the line that I find really hard to draw, which is, you know, how much is enough to be competitive. So it's enjoyable because frankly, it's not fun if you're out of shape, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's just like, it was getting to be so that it wasn't fun. And that's what, you know, I, that's what I love about running. I want it to be fun. And when I was training marathoners and I'm, you know, I'm now I'm working with I'm co assistant coaching at the high school, all the track and cross country kids. I said, it's gotta be fun. You've got to really enjoy it. You know, right. let's do whatever we have to do to make this fun. And right. that's my whole shtick about running is, you know, enjoy it and have fun doing it. Otherwise find something else to do. Right. And, and you know, that, that doesn't mean it isn't work sometimes, right. Or there isn't Absolutely. a certain yep. amount of uh, feedback from your body. I'll say like the, uh, like the barefoot running guys say feedback, which is a, a, a politically correct word for pain. Yep. And, and I, you know, I tell them, you know, you know, you know what days you can, you know, you can push yourself. You know what days, 
know, you listen to your body and you go out and you say, okay, you know, I feel good today. I can pick up the pace. I don't have to just do my, you know, you know, jog at, you know, eight minute miles. I can actually push it down to seven for a couple of miles and, you know, really get my body thinking about, you know, how much fun this really is. And you can actually have fun, you know, pushing yourself because you feel like you've really made an accomplishment that day. Yeah. At some point you, uh, you know, through that, that training, you start to transcend the training and it gets really fun. You know, but then as you get older, you know, we're, we're older guys, as you get older, you, you look for something else, right? Cause you can't get faster anymore and you can't go farther right. anymore. And at some point it becomes, you know, you're just doing more of the same and it's not all that intellectually satisfying. Yeah. There's another phase where you go through and you start doing things like, okay, I'm going to run a marathon every month or I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to, there's, here's my list of races. You know, I'm going to do this list of races. So you yeah. start, you go through that phase. So it sounds like you have, you've already been through that phase. Yeah, I've actually gone, I've gotten into the next phase now that, you know, I did a couple of triathlons back when they were first starting in the, the early 80s, and they were, you know, like sprint distance, you know, mile swim, you know, 30-mile bike, 10K run. Now, you know, I've done a couple of, I did two half Ironman last summer. You know, I've already signed up for two this summer. I'm, I'm like, okay, let's, you know, try something different. So the, the biking, I've, you know, hooked up with a group of bikers you know here in town and it's been really enjoyable so it's like alternating days between running and biking and then swimming in the morning so i've met a whole new i guess wealth or family of friends and it's actually starting to challenge me again so i'm starting to get that you know 30 year old competitiveness back now only in the triathlon venue yeah, because it's something new. It's intellectually challenging as well. Yeah, it's like, you know, now it's, I know how to run. I've been running for, you know, 34 years, 35 years. And it's like, you know, I know what I have to do to accomplish my goals for running. But the triathlon now is a whole new thing for me. And I'm like, all right, what do I have to do to accomplish this? I have to start researching, you know, the biking and the swimming. And the, so it's, it's been real, it's been challenging mentally and physically. So it's been great. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, my experience with triathlon is that the only thing you really need to do is spend a whole lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> that's a true statement also. It's like, <laughs> I was able to, my son-in-law is a triathlete, so he asked me if I remodeled his bathroom, he would give me his triathlon bike and he'd buy a new one. My wife, great. His, his wife wasn't happy about that, but it worked for all three of us, so we're okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> that's good barter and i got a great bike for free i was just you know i'm retired i got nothing to do with my time so remodeling his bathroom was no big deal and i got a free bike so that's good the barter system the triathlon barter system i like that yeah and, and, and he gets a new bike yeah 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 because he tells his wife hey i don't have a bike now i gotta go buy a new one <laughs> so you know that's part of it is you start going horizontally into, into different sports, right? I'm in that phase as well. And then you start doing the, you know, the uh, marathon a month thing or the target racing, but also you start thinking a lot more about community and being involved in the community aspect, you know, the volunteering and the organization of events and, and just trying to get more people in. It sounds like you do a lot of that as well. Yeah. My, my wife actually says I got my mother's volunteer gene. My mother, you know, got Bless her heart, she's uh, since passed, and she lived to be 94. When she was 85, actually got volunteer of the year at the local hospital in Manchester. And, you know, she's always volunteered or done volunteer work. Or, and I kind of got her gene. I've, you know, been a Red Cross, you know, first aid instructor, ski patroller, mentored kids in high school, mentored Vietnamese kids when they were first coming over, uh, you know, I've always been involved in something. I've, you know, been president of a wish-granting organization here in New Hampshire, and just always involved, always helping kids. You know, trying to make life better for them. I've been doing a lot of charity work with, you know, like I said, leukemia, and that's kind of what I'm doing my run across New Hampshire for is to raise money for leukemia. So, and my friend's daughter passed away from it, so that, you know, kind of motivated me a little more. Right. And then you start looking beyond yourself to say, where's the 
intersection of what I love to do, what I'm passionate about, and helping the community, right? Yeah. And, right. and one of those one of those ways is to do something like you're you're doing here, right? Right. I'm saying, you know, what can I do that I can make you know life better for someone else? You know. So when you ran, you I don't have the greatest life, but boy, I got it a lot better than a lot of people's. Yep. You can always take action. What yep. when you you ran from Canada to what Massachusetts? Massachusetts. Yeah. And how did that go? That how how many miles a day was that? It was basically twenty seven miles a day. So I I would and I would break it up. Uh, actually, I got the idea from a friend who did it. Only two people have done it north to south. This guy Mike Beeman, who's a friend of mine who now lives in Georgia, and myself. The only guys who've done it north to south. Four guys have done it east, east to west. So I figured, well, let me be the first who have done it both north and south and east and west. So There you go. And Mike had done it many years ago, and he did it actually pushing a stroller with his kids in it. Huh. And, and he did it to raise money for a charity. I went, you know, that's a great idea. So I kind of stole his idea. I called him up, told him I was going to do it. He gave me all advice on how he did it. So basically he said, break it up, three nine-mile runs a day. You know, run nine miles, take a break hydrate, get something to eat, run nine miles, and it actually worked out fine. I was flabbergasted on how well I felt at the end. I was amazed that, you know, I thought I'd be sore and, you know, taking 55-gallon drums of Advil, and, and it was, I was fine. I had very little pain whatsoever, and it was, it was really amazing. So how, how long did it take? It, eight days. I did basically a marathon a day for eight days. It was 221 miles. Yeah, because that's not even long enough for your body to get mad and adapt. Yeah. So, yeah, that's great. So how long is it going to take to run across it the horizontal way? Uh, four days. Again, you know, 27 miles a day. It's 116 miles. So, So yeah. You're lucky uh, you you're, you live in New England and not Texas. I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny, the local radio guy that I'm friends with called up one day because he had seen my website on Facebook, and he said the same thing. He said, you know, thank God you don't live in Texas. When we look at this as, you know, as, as older, more mature runners, uh, we look at this and we look at the cycles that we've gone through sort of in our careers, right, as, as amateur athletes. You almost want to tell people that you see starting out and starting into that faster, more, you know, better phase. You almost want to tell them, Hey, here's what's going to happen. You know, here's how the next 15 years of your life is going to progress. Yeah, right. and, and you can't, you can't tell them, right. They, yeah, cause they just don't want to hear it. They don't listen because, you know, they say, Oh, that won't happen to me. That won't be part of mine because I'll do this. But it, yeah, it is amazing. Cause you, you know, you try to explain to them and sometimes you really can't put into words, you know, some of the emotional roller coasters they're going to go through on that journey. Right. And and maybe it's better that we let them take that journey, right? Yeah, absolutely. Everyone has to, you know, take, you know, walk that road by themselves. We'll head to the exit here, but tell me, uh, give me the detail, give me the links for what you're doing, and we'll see if we can, we can drive some folks to your site. Okay. My, uh, I'm basically running from the Vermont-New Hampshire border, you know, diagonally across, uh, not diagonally, yeah, horizontally across the state of New Hampshire, total of 116 Point eight miles, basically doing a marathon a day, you know, for four days, raising money for leukemia, lymphoma, blood cancers, looking for any assistance that I could get. Either if you want to come and run with me, go to my website. There's a place for you to log on, and you can run a nine-mile leg. Every day is broken up into three nine-mile legs, and you can come and join me for a nine-mile leg if you want, or you can just make a donation and help me attain my goal. And what's the link? It's runacrossnh.com. R-U-N-A-C-R-O-S-S-N-H.com. All right, Dave. Well, thank you for your time, and uh, we'll look forward to the continued journey here, the two of us, yeah? Well, thank you very much, Chris. I've enjoyed it, and uh, happy running to you. Yeah, come down this weekend and run Groton. Okay. Well, you know, my, my, I'm actually picking my wife up from Florida. If I can, after not seeing her for a week, sneak out, that probably might happen. Come on. You've been married as long as I have. <laughs> uh, we've been, my wife and I have been together 38 years, so. <laughs> <laughs>
you know, you, you know, you'd rather run a race. Yeah. <laughs> when we first got married, it was like every weekend, and she's like, "Is this what the rest of my life is going to be like?" You know, because I was new to running, and it was like, "Yeah, every weekend I was off somewhere." Yeah. All right, well, man. Thank you. Thank you again, Chris, for all your help. Yep. Have a great day. You too. Now, bye. Bye bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Falling back in love with the 1600. When I ran my first qualifying marathon, I was 34 years old. I trained for 16 weeks in the summer of 1997, and I dropped my finishing time from the 350-ish range to a 309 in 16 weeks that summer. And the following spring, I ran a 306 and change at Boston, and that still stands as my personal best at this distance. And so what did I do in those 16 weeks to drop 45 minutes off my finishing time? I did 1600s. Lots and lots of 1600s. I also ran seven days a week and took my Sunday long runs up to two at 26 miles. But what got me the speed was the speed work, the 1600s. I was down at the track, actually many different tracks, twice a week for 16 weeks, without fail, putting in the work to burn in the pace that I needed to meet my goal. I liked the specificity of the work. I loved and hated the sameness of it, the simplicity of it, and the effectiveness of it for my purpose. And this process was different than what you might read in a training plan or a how-to running book. I did not run these 1600s to find my pace and to set my goals. I did it did the reverse of that. I set my goals and then executed the 1600s at the pace I needed to to get to those goals. And I'm coming back to this now because I find myself once again in need of burning in the pace I need to qualify. I also got asked a question this week about the effectiveness of 800s, uh, to which I responded that I thought 1600s were much more appropriate when training for a marathon. So let me explain my madness to you, and you can take from it what you want. First, the basics. A 1,600-meter interval is the equivalent of a metric mile on your standard out-of-doors running track. It is four laps around that 400-meter oval. Each corner and each straightaway are 100 meters. Two laps around is 800 meters. All of this is in the centermost lane, starting and ending at the same spot on the track. And if you plan to do any of this, if you plan to act out my 1600 love affair, you should be warned, forewarned, that it can be quite hard on your body. So you need to warm up and stretch well. I usually jog at least a mile to warm up, then I stretch, then I do my intervals, then I warm down with at least another mile jog, and then I stretch again. In between the intervals, I jog a lap, no matter what. So I don't want to train my body slash mind to expect a collapse or a walk after a hard effort. No matter how spent I am, I jog and recover a 400 immediately following the end of the interval. And then I stop and stretch and take a drink or let my heart rate come down. It takes a few weeks for your body to catch up and to figure out this speed work. And you may want to ease into it with 200s and 400s and 800s and 1200s and work up to the distance until you can complete that 1600 with disciplined mechanics. You might jump to the conclusion that I'm doing speed work primarily for conditioning, strength, and fitness. I am not. These are happy outcomes of the speed work, but they are not the purpose. I primarily do speed work to burn in pace, mechanics, and form discipline. So what I'm trying to accomplish when I do speed work is, first, pace discipline. I want to be able to maintain that exact pace for the entire interval. This teaches and burns in that pace so that I know in a race what my pace is without looking at my watch. I do this by memorizing or marking the 200-meter splits and getting as close to each required split as possible throughout the entire 1600. This teaches pace, pace competence, and pace discipline. 
The second thing I want to learn by doing this speed work is mechanics and form. To run at that exact pace, I need to find and burn in a very efficient form and mechanics for that exact pace. The mechanics should not break at all during the interval. When you feel your pace flagging, you focus on reeling in your form and your mechanic elements to get back on pace. Don't just increase the effort. Focus on relaxing into the effort with pace and form. This teaches form, form confidence, and form discipline. The third thing is managing discomfort and relaxing into it. What you will find with a 1600 is that the third lap is the hardest lap. This is where it starts to hurt, and you really have to transcend to get through. This is exactly what you need in a long race. This teaches the ability to recover mid-race at high effort and keep going. Like I said, my speed work is not focused on getting faster or stronger, although these things will happen. It is about being able to maintain that race pace you need across that distance. So why not run 800 meter repeats, I was asked. It's the same thing, right? And Bart Yasso does them, right? Well, in my experience, an 800 meter interval is just not long enough to force the pace and form and discomfort discipline that I just talked about that you need for a longer race like the marathon. If you're in shape to run a marathon, you should be able to gut out an 800 without any effort at all. So what I'm saying is that you can fake it in an 800 and you can't fake it for a 1600. That third lap can be an uncomfortable and harrowing ordeal. You're still far away from the finish and your lungs and legs are protesting. In order to get through it, you're going to be forced to relax into the effort and focus on your form and pace. The 800 doesn't have that harrowing third lap and is sure enough to gut it out without the focus on pace and form. So let's talk about how to build a 1600 program that will get you to your goal marathon time. I have all the math and schedules and stuff in the post on my website. I'm going to summarize here in the audio. So there's two paces I like to burn in. I call them speed and tempo. I set speed at approximately one minute per mile faster than my goal marathon pace. I set tempo at approximately 30 seconds per mile faster than my goal marathon pace. And first, you need to know what pace, right? So, for instance, when I used to be targeting a sub 310 marathon finish when I first started doing this, that meant somewhere a pace somewhere in the low sevens to get a sub 310 finish. So if I take a minute off of that for my speed, I would set my speed at 6 minutes per 1600. And if I take 30 seconds off of that, I would set my tempo at 6.30 per 1600. And I know you math majors will tell me that there's a difference between one mile and 1600 meters, and I know that. But what I do here, what I'm doing here is that at this pace, it's probably another four or five seconds to complete an entire mile. So I'm just converting and not worrying about it because it's close enough and I'm in the right ballpark. For an overall training plan or campaign, what I do is speed intervals on Tuesdays and tempo intervals on Thursdays and then the long run on the weekend. Now, in between, you can either do cross-training or you can do easy runs. It's up to you. It depends on how, how much you think you can take without breaking. In my case, I would do a 14- or 16-week campaign, and it would be based on three-week waves where week one is a low week, week two is a medium week, and week three is a hard week, and then week four becomes another easy or recovery week, but each wave builds, so week four is actually about the same difficulty as week two, and each week three is a new peak of volume. So three, six, nine are new peaks up until you uh, taper two weeks before the marathon. Traditionally, the week one starting point would be two 1600s at speed, so two speed intervals on Tuesday, and five tempo intervals, 1600s, on Thursday, and a 13-mile long run. That's where I'd start the campaign. So you got to be in pretty good shape to start this campaign. But the final week, the peak week, I would do five 
speed intervals on Tuesday, and eight, yes, I said eight, tempo intervals on Thursday with a 24-plus mile long run. So this kind of volume is going to get you up into the 50, 60 miles per week. Again, it's uh, it's not easy, and not for someone who breaks easily. If As you work through this program, this campaign of 1600, you'll notice that your form and your mechanics are getting very good, and the intervals will start to hurt less. And by the end of the campaign, you'll be able to knock them off with ease, but you will also have burned in that pace. Again, you end up being in great race shape with the volume and the quality of this training, but it's not the main goal. The main goal is to burn in race pace and mechanics. And if you have never done this before, if you have never raced before, you may learn a whole new way of using your body by doing this. And if you're stuck, you can't get any faster, this is definitely a great way to break those kind of log jams. And I'm returning to this methodology now because I'm in a no man's land with regards to my current race pace and mechanics. And the difference now is I don't need or want a sub 310 marathon. I need a sub 330 marathon. So I'm going to have to adjust my paces. And if I do the math, uh, uh, 3.30 is an 8-minute mile. So if I take a minute off of that for my speed and round down, it's going to be in the 6.50 per mile range. And if I take 30 seconds off it and round down, it's going to be in the 7.10 to 7.20 range. So what I do then is I divide those up by 8 to find out the 200-meter splits, and I mark those on the track so I can hit each 200-meter split exactly, or I have them on a piece of paper, or you can put them in your device, right? And then what you want to do is you want to make sure you run those splits evenly. And what I do is I give myself a plus or minus tolerance at the end of the 1600 of 5 seconds. If you find you can't make those tolerances, you might need to back off and run some shorter distances until you get your strength. So again, I have all the splits in the post. So there's a lot of moving pieces in training for a marathon, and when you're training for a qualifying marathon time, the BAA, they don't really care about anything except your finishing time. And finishing time is a product of pacing discipline over the distance, and you can programmatically burn that pacing in by systematically running 1600s down at your local track. It's not sexy, but it works. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Thank you folks, another successful Run Run Live, completed on time and on schedule with no government assistance, episode 3-260 in the can. I've signed up for the Vermont Shires Marathon on May 19th. They offered a free entry to anyone who didn't finish Boston. It's only a two and a half hour drive for me, and I don't have a Vermont Marathon yet. Yes, I'm going to keep training and keep running marathons until I get my qualifying time. You already knew that, I'm guessing. (laughs) The plantar fasciitis is okay. It continues to hover at a 1 to 2 on the 10 scale. And I do my best not to make it mad. I do the self-massage and I tape it when I have to. I actually called my orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Hester, last week. And I wanted to ask him a question about this steroidal cream that one of my friends was using. And he was surprised to hear that I was back to running marathons. Because based on, he said, well, based on the extent of the scar tissue in your injuries last time, you know, when, when, we, when we previously talked, he figured I wouldn't be running again uh, eight months ago. So let that be a lesson to you. Don't ever give up. Keep chipping away at it. You'll make progress. He told me that the creams only penetrate five millimeters deep and that the injury is 20 millimeters deep. So he'd write me a prescription if I really wanted one, but I do just as well with hand cream and it smells better. I bought a pair of hokas. No kidding. And I paid retail. This must be the bizarro universe of Run Run Live. Yep, I did. Hokas are a shoe for ultra runners that you might call maximal footwear as opposed to minimal footwear. They have a huge, huge pillow of EVA 
and your foot sits down inside this big pillowy midsole. I race the Groton 10K in them, and I like them. They feel awesome to run in, like running on big clouds. I particularly like the downhills because the big midfoot pad was like a big spring absorbing and rebounding my 190 pounds. Even with all that cushion, they only weigh 10 ounces, and they didn't hinder me at all as I turned in a 47.29 on a hilly 10K course. The tote box is a bit tight, and I'll have to remember to tape my big toes to keep from losing those purple toenails, but I'm going to wear them on my long runs to see if I can curb the abuse on my body a bit. And I've discovered a couple of new tracks to run on. There's a track in Burlington where I work that is just about two-ish miles from my office door, which is perfect for speed work because I can warm up on the run over to the track, run my speed work, and then cool down on the run back. It's awesome. They also have completed the renovation of the old track in Littleton, the town I live, where I have spent so many long nights struggling in circles, or ovals, as the case may be, and it's it's gorgeous. It's surreal to be running on a brand new track where my old pothole friend used to be. The only problem is that now that it's usable again, they actually use it and I have to plan around the track team. I've gotten Fujisan dusted off and am doing at least one long bike ride a week on the rail trail as part of my training. Also got the 29 route and that's running great as well. It was wonderful. I was amazed at how quickly my balance and flow came back when I was out in the woods. I didn't crash at all and it was well like riding a bike. Well, my friends, I am busy and I am happy. My quixotic life rambles on and I hope to see you all out there. Thanks for listening, folks. I appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free podcast, a free service for you because I like writing and I like telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm CYKT Russell. And as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlib.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing. If you're moved by something I say and would like to see if that's actually what I wrote, there you go. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Thank you for your attention. Do epic stuff and let me know if I can help. Ciao.